Section 39 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Chapter 11. Calvin and the Reformed Church by the Reverend A. M. Fairburn. Part 3. We come, then, to Calvin's legislative achievements as his main title to name and fame. But two points must here be noted. In the first place, while his theology was less original and effective than his legislation or polity, yet he so construed the former as to make the latter its logical and indeed inevitable outcome. The polity was a deduction from the theology, which may be defined as a science of the divine will, as a moral will, aiming at the complete moralization of man, whether as a unit or as a society. The two were thus so organically connected that each lent strength to the other, the system to the church and the church to the system, while other and more potently reasonable theologies either died or lived a feeble and struggling life. Secondly, the legislation was made possible and practicable by Geneva, probably the only place in Europe where it could have been enacted and enforced. We have learned enough concerning Genevan history and institutions to understand why this should have been the case. The city was small, free, homogeneous, distinguished by a strong local patriotism, a stalwart communal life. In obedience to these instincts, it had just emancipated itself from the ecclesiastical prince and its ancient religious system, and the change thus accomplished was, though disguised in a religious habit, yet essentially political. For the council which abolished the bishop had made itself heir to his faculties and functions. It could only dismiss him as civil lord by dismissing him as the ecclesiastical head of Geneva, and in so doing it assumed the right to succeed as well as to supersede him in both capacities. This, however, involved a notable inversion of old ideas. Before the change, the ecclesiastical authority had been civil, but because of the change, the civil authority became ecclesiastical. If theocracy means the rule of the church, or the sovereignty of the clergy in the state, then the ancient constitution of Geneva was theocratic. If democracy means the sovereignty of the people in church as well as in state, then the change had made it democratic. And it was just after the change had been effected that Calvin's connection with the city began. Its chief pastor had persuaded him to stay as a colleague, and the council appointed him professor and preacher. He was young, exactly 27 years of age, full of high ideals, but inexperienced, unacquainted with men, without any knowledge of Geneva and the state of things there. He could therefore make no terms, could only stay to do his duty. What that duty was soon became apparent. Geneva had not become any more moral in character because it had changed its mind in religion. It had two months before Calvin's arrival sworn to live according to the holy evangelical law and word of God. 
but it did not seem to understand its own oath and the man whom his intellectual sincerity and moral integrity had driven out of catholicism could not hold office in any church which made light of conviction and conduct and so he at once set himself to organize a church that should be efficaciously moral he built on the ancient genevan idea that the city is a church only he wished to make the church to be primary and real the theocracy which had been construed as the reign of the clergy he would interpret as ideal and realize as a reign of god the citizens who had assumed control of their own spiritual destinies and ecclesiastical affairs he wanted to instruct in their responsibilities and discipline into obedience and he would do it in the way of a jurist who believes in the harmony of law and custom he would by positive enactments train the city which conceived itself to be a church to be and behave as if it were indeed a church living according to the gospel which it had sworn to obey thus a confession of faith was drawn up which the people were to adopt as their own and so attain clarity and concordance of mind concerning god and his word and a catechism was composed which was to be made the basis of religious instruction in both the school and the family for the citizen as well as the child worship was to be carefully regulated psalm books prepared psalm singing cultivated the preacher was to interpret the word and the pastor to supervise the flock the lord's supper was to be celebrated monthly but only those who were morally fit or worthy were to be allowed to communicate the church in order that it might fulfil its functions and guard the holy table must have the right of excommunication it was not enough that a man should be a citizen or a counsellor to be admitted to the lord's supper his mind must be christian and his conduct christ-like without faith the right was profaned the presence of christ was not realized moreover since matrimonial cases were many and infelicity sprang both from differences of faith and impurity of conduct a board composed partly of magistrates and partly of ministers was to be appointed to deal with them and it was to have the power to exclude from the church those who either did not believe its doctrines or did not obey its commandments these were drastic proposals to be made to a city which had just dismissed its bishop attained political freedom and proclaimed a reformation of religion and calvin was not the man to leave them inoperative a card-player was pilloried a tire-woman a mother and two bridesmaids were arrested because they had adorned the bride too gaily an adulterer was driven with the partner of his guilt through the streets by the common hangman and then banished these things taxed the temper of the city sorely it was not unfamiliar with legislation of the kind but it had not been accustomed to see it enforced hence men who came to be known as libertines though they were both patriotic and moral and only craved freedom rose and said this is an intolerable tyranny we will not allow any man to be lord over our consciences and about the same time 
Calvin's orthodoxy was challenged. Two Anabaptists arrived and demanded liberty to prophesy, and Peter Caroli charged him with heresy as to the Trinity. He would not use the Athanasian Creed, and he defended himself by reasons that the scholar who knows its history will respect. The end soon came. When he heard that he had been sentenced to banishment, he said, If I had served men, this would have been a poor reward, but I have served him who never fails to perform what he has promised. In 1541, Geneva recalled Calvin and he obeyed as one who goes to fulfil an imperative but unwelcome duty. There is nothing more pathetic in the literature of the period than his hesitancies and fears. He tells Farrell that he would rather die a hundred times than again take up that cross in quamilias quotidia periundum esset. And he writes to Vire that it were better to perish once for all than in illa carnificina Eterum torqueri. But he loved Geneva, and it was an evil case. Rome was plotting to reclaim it. Savoy was watching her opportunity. The patriots feared to go forward, and even the timid dared not to go back. So the necessities of the city, divided between its factions and its foes, constituted an appeal which Calvin could not resist. But he did not yield unconditionally. He went back as the legislator who was to frame laws for its church, and he so adapted them to the civil constitution and the constitution to them that he raised the little city of Geneva to be the Protestant Rome. Calvin's idea, whether of the church or the state, it is neither possible nor necessary to discuss fully here. As he conceived, fatherhood belonged to God, motherhood to the church. We entered into life by being conceived in her womb and suckled at her breast, and so long as we lived we were as scholars in her school. She was Catholic, holy, one and indivisible. To invent another church would be to divide Christ. In this sense she comprehended all the people of God, his elect, in every age and place. But this eternal and internal church was, as it were, distributed into local and external churches, which existed in the towns and villages inhabited of men. Calvin held, indeed, that the local ought to possess the same spiritual qualities as the universal church, but he did not hold the two to be identical. They differed in many ways, in the one case, the chosen of God constituted the church, but in the other case, as Augustine had said, there are very many sheep without and very many wolves within. The universal church lived under the immediate sovereignty of God, but particular churches, while bound so to live, yet were organized according to the wants of human society and so long as the people were gods and lived unto him, their society was a church which, as an inhabitant of space and time, could not but live its corporate life in some state, in relation to it, even while differing from it. What this relation ought to be, Calvin rather implied than discussed. He assumed their distinctness, 
but his policy often involved their identity. It would be approximately true to say that the ideal church was independent of the state, above it while distributed through it. But the actual church, while owing its existence to the ideal, was yet associated with the state, and often bound to act with it and through it. It was not possible that a local church should be merged in the state, for then it would cease to be a divine institution, or be subordinate to the state, for then it would be a mere minister of man's will, subject to all the accidents and influences proper to time, or be separated from the state, for then it would be cut off from the field which most needed its presence and action. Hence the proper analogy was natural rather than political. As soul and body constituted one man, so church and state constituted one society, distinct in function, but inseparable in being. Without the state, there would be no medium for the church to work in, no body for the soul to animate. Without the church, there would be no law higher than expediency to govern the state no ideal of thought and conduct, no soul to animate the body. Both church and state, therefore, were necessary to the good ordering of society, and each was explained by the same idea. All human authority was the creation of God. His will had formed the state to care for the actual man, who was temporal, and the church to care for the ideal man, who was immortal. Each had the same cause or root, and without both, life could not be so ordered as to realize eternal will. Over the state, God placed the magistrate, who might here be a monarch, an emperor or king, and there a syndic or council, created by the people for the people. But whatever he might be, he was yet a power ordained of God for the good of man, and the regulation of society. In, rather than over, the church, God had set a ministry or authorities that were to rule by the teaching which convinced the reason and commanded the conscience, and by the service which won the heart and persuaded the will. The ministers were responsible to the state in all civil matters, but the magistrates were responsible to the church in all religious concerns especially those affecting faith and conduct. The laws of the state were civil in form, but religious in origin. The laws of the church were civil in sanction, though spiritual in scope and purpose. Calvin indeed had, as regards civil polity, distinguished between monarchy, aristocracy and democracy, and had indicated their respective excellencies and defects, as well as his own personal preferences, but he declined to assert that one of them was absolutely, or under all conditions, the best. He could not feel as if a similar latitude of judgment were allowed him as regards the church, where man was not free to follow any order he liked, for in the New Testament a polity was given him to imitate. Our Lord had himself shown how his church ought to be governed, and where he had spoken, man's duty was to interpret his word and do his will. The Ordonnance Ecclesiastique may be described as Calvin's programme of Genevan reform, 
or his method for applying to the local and external church the government which our lord had instituted and the apostles had realized these ordinances expressed his historical sense and gratified his religious temper while adapting the church to the city so that the city might become a better church to explain in detail how he proposed to do this is impossible within our limits and we shall therefore confine ourselves to the most important of the factors he created the ministry and the consistory the reformed ministry had till now been largely the creation of conversion or inspiration or chance and the result could not be termed satisfactory convinced men had found their way into it and had created a conviction as sincere and an enthusiasm as vehement as their own but along with them had also come hosts of restless men moved by superficial and often ignoble causes discontent petulance discomfort the desire to legitimize illegitimate connections dislike to authority and the mere love of change and they had proved most mischievous forces in the protestant churches had continued restless become seditious impracticable schismatic authors of disorder and enemies of peace who arrested progress and made men ashamed of change calvin had had his own experience of these men and he as a man of grave and juristic mind had found the experience disagreeable and was to find it more disagreeable still with the insight of genius he perceived that the battle could be won not by chance recruits but only by a disciplined army and in order that the army might be created he invented the discipline the ordinances may indeed be termed a method for making and guiding a reformed ministry a clergy that without any priestly character should yet be more efficient than the ancient priesthood hence where the roman placed the church calvin set the deity and made a man's right to enter the mysterial office depend on his vocation by god but this belief in a divine choice and call was to be tested by a threefold process examination election institution or introduction the examination which was to be conducted by men already in the ministry the recognized preachers and teachers of the church covered the whole period of thought and life what the candidate had learned at school and college what he had been at home and in society what evidence he could furnish as to his calling being of god he had to show what and why he believed the relation in which his beliefs stood to the church on the one hand and the scriptures on the other whether he could teach what he had learned or preach as he believed how he had hitherto lived and whether he had so behaved himself as to be without reproach if the candidate satisfied the ministerial examiners they presented him to the council if the council approved he preached before the people and if they approved he was declared to be elected a minister of the word institution which was as much a civil as a religious process followed and it ended with the candidate taking an oath before the council that he would edify the church serve the city 
and set to all a goodly example of obedience. But these initial steps were not the most essential parts of the discipline. More effectual still were the means employed to secure the minister's efficiency and to define his relation to the city or church. The conduct of each person was a concern of the ministerial body as a whole, and the behaviour of the body was open to the criticism of every minister. The humblest pastor had the right, which was laid upon him as a duty, to criticise the bearing or the action of the most eminent, and responsibility was so personal and yet so collective, at once so concentrated and so distributed, that while it belonged to all, each individual was made to feel as if he alone bore it. Thus, in Geneva, the ministers formed the venerable company, correspondent to the smaller council, which was, as it were, the cabinet or executive of the greater, and every week it met in congregation, as it was called, to study the scriptures, discuss doctrine, and review conduct. There was, besides, every three months a special synod which made inquisition into the faults and failures of the brotherhood, and was charged with the discipline of the faithless. Alongside of these faculties ran duties which were coextensive with the religious wants of the city. The minister of the word was a preacher who had to speak to the people concerning the truth and will of God, a pastor of the flock which was given him to supervise and tend, a guide of the worship which he was bound to make worthy of God and uplifting to man, an administrator of the sacraments which sealed the covenants and spoke to faith of God's saving grace and the presence of his Son, an instructor with the duty of catechizing old and young and directing education, a friend to every man who needed him, with a special mission to the poor, especially in seasons of disease and distress, while also the soul of all the charity in the city. Nor, though the ministers were to hold so influential a place in the body politic, could they come to feel as if they were a self-propagating, an exclusive, or a sacrosanct corporation. Without the ministry, the minister could not be made, but without the people, he could not be called or maintained. He issued from the ranks of the citizens, and he could be reduced to their condition again. If his conduct was scandalous, or if his faith changed or failed, the reduction was inevitable. He was responsible to the church, typified by its clergy, and responsible for the church, typified by the city or the laity. Calvin's theory was a theocracy, not a hierocracy. The clergy did not reign, nor did the organised church govern, but God reigned over church and state alike, and so governed that both magistrates and clergy were his ministers. In Geneva, every office was sacred and existed for the glory of the God who was its creator. The ministerial ideal embodied in these ecclesiastical ordinances may be said to have had certain indirect but international results. It compelled Calvin to develop his system of education. It supplied the Reformed Church, especially in France, with the men which it needed to fight its battles and to form the iron in its blood. It presented the Reformed Church everywhere 
with an intellectual and educational ideal which must be realized if its work was to be done and it created the modern preacher defining the sphere of his activity and setting up for his imitation a noble and lofty example calvin soon found that the reformed faith could live in a democratic city only by an enlightened pulpit speaking to enlightened citizens and that an educated ministry was helpless without an educated people his method for creating both entitles him to rank among the foremost makers of modern education as a humanist he believed in the classical languages and literatures there is a tradition which says that he read through cicero once a year and so quote, he built his system on the solid rock of greco-roman antiquity end quote. yet he did not neglect religion he so trained the boys of geneva through his catechism that each was said to be able to give a reason for his faith quote, like a doctor of the sorbonne end quote. he believed in the unity of knowledge and the community of learning placing the magistrate and the minister the citizen and the pastor in the hands of the same teacher and binding the school and the university together the boy learned in the one and the man studied in the other but the school was the way to the university the university was the goal of the school in nothing does the pedagogic genius of calvin more appear than in his fine jealousy as to the character and competence whether of masters or professors and in his unwearied quest after qualified men his letters teem with references to the men in various lands and many universities whom he was seeking to bring to geneva the first rector antoine saunier was a notable man and he never rested till he had secured his dear old teacher matelin cordier castelio was a schoolmaster theodore beza was head of college and academy or school and university together and calvin himself was a professor of theology the success of the college was great the success of the academy was greater men came from all quarters english italians spanish germans russians ministers jurists old men young men all with the passion to learn in their blood to jostle each other among the thousand hearers who met to listen to the great reformer but france was the main feeder of the academy frenchmen filled its chairs occupied its benches learned in it the courage to live and the will to die from geneva books poured into france and the french church was ever appealing for ministers yet never appealed in vain within eleven years fifteen fifty five to fifteen sixty six calvin died in fifteen sixty four it is known that geneva sent one hundred and sixty one pastors into france how many more may have gone unrecorded we cannot tell and they were learned men strenuous fearless praised by a french bishop as modest grave saintly with the name of jesus christ ever on their lips charles the ninth implored the magistrates of geneva to stop the supply and withdraw the men already sent but the magistrates replied that the preachers had been sent not by them but by their ministers who believed that the sovereign duty of all princes and kings was to do homage to him who had given to them their dominion 
it was small wonder that the venetian suriano should describe geneva as the mine whence come the ore of heresy or that the protestants should gather courage as they heard the men from geneva sing psalms in the face of torture and death it was indeed a very different france which the eyes of the dying calvin saw from that which the young man had seen thirty years before religious hate was even more bitter and vindictive war had come and made persecution more ferocious but the huguenots had grown numerous potent respected feared and disputed with catholicism the supremacy of the kingdom and calvin had done it not by arms nor by threats nor by encouragement of sedition or insurrection to such action he was ever resolutely opposed but by the agency of the men whom he formed in geneva and by their persuasive speech the reformed minister was essentially a preacher intellectual exegetical argumentative seriously concerned with the subjects that most appealed to the serious-minded modern oratory may be said to begin with him and indeed to be his creation he helped to make the vernacular tongues of western europe literary he accustomed the people to hear the gravest and most sacred themes discussed in the language which they knew and the themes ennobled the language the language was never allowed to degrade the themes and there was no tongue and no people that he influenced more than the french calvin made bossuet and massillon possible as a preacher he found his successor in bourdaloue and a literary critic who does not love him has expressed a doubt as to whether pascal could be more eloquent or was so profound and the ideal then realized in geneva exercised an influence far beyond france it extended into holland which in the strength of the reformed faith resisted charles v and his son achieved independence and created the freest and best educated state on the continent of europe john knox breathed for a while the atmosphere of geneva was subdued into the likeness of the man who had made it and when he went home he copied its education and tried to repeat its reformation english reformers fleeing from martyrdom found a refuge within its hospitable walls and returning to england attempted to establish the genevan discipline and failed but succeeded in forming the puritan character if the author of the ordonnance ecclesiastique accomplished whether directly or indirectly so much we need not hesitate to term him a noble friend to civilization the consistory may be described as calvin's method for moralizing through the church the life of man and the state to which he belonged he may in the manner of the jurist have imagined that regulation by positive law was the most efficient means of governing conduct but if he legislated as a jurist he thought and purposed as a reformer it is here where injustice is easiest that we ought to be most scrupulously just calvin was resolved so far as he had power to make the church what it had not been but what it ought to be an institution organized for the creation of a moral mankind 
For this reason he claimed for it the right of excommunication and the power to excommunicate. But as he conceived the matter, the exercise of the power which followed from the possession of the right, while spiritual in essence and in purpose, might yet be civil in certain of its effects. The consistory was a body appointed to be the guardian of morals, and therefore possessed of the power to excommunicate. It was composed of six ministers and twelve elders. The elders were to be elected annually, and were to be men of good and honourable conduct, blameless and free from suspicion, animated by the fear of God, and endowed with spiritual wisdom. They were to be chosen, two from the smaller council, four from the council of sixty, and six from the great council. They were to be elected at the same time as the magistrates, were to be capable of re-election, and were to take the oath of allegiance to the state and fidelity to the church. They represented the idea that Geneva was a church state, and their duties were to have their eyes upon every man, family, or district, to have their ears open to every complaint, to punish every offence according to a carefully graduated scale, and to enforce purity everywhere. The consistory's jurisdiction was not civil but spiritual. The sword which it wielded was not Caesar's but Christ's. Yet it had rights of entry and investigation that were not so much Christ's as Caesar's. It was a judicial body and sat every Thursday to examine charges of misconduct or immorality, to pass sentences from which there was no appeal, and where necessary to hand the guilty over to the magistrates to be punished according to law. If any offender refused to appear, a civil officer was sent to bring him, and so every ecclesiastical offence became an act of civil disobedience. Thus, obstinate refusal to communicate was regarded as a punishable crime. So were frivolous or continued absence from church, disrespect to parents, blasphemy, and adultery. One young woman who sang profane songs was banished, and another who sang them to psalm tunes was scourged. Heresy became as much an offence as immorality. If a creed or confession becomes a law of the state as well as of the church, to speak or agitate against it becomes treason. In other words, if opinion is established by law, heresy is turned into crime. And this Geneva soon discovered. Castellio's doubts as to the canonicity of Solomon's song and as to the received interpretation of Christ's descent into Hades, Balsek's criticism of predestination, Grue's suspected scepticism and possession of infidel books, Servetus's rationalism and anti-Trinitarian creed, were all opinions judged to be criminal. Infallibility is not the only system that makes heresy culpable and the heretic guilty. If the church will be a state and enforce its laws, which must affect both conduct and belief, by the only method a state can follow, then it must bear the reproach of being more cruel and therefore more unjust than any purely civil power. The heretic may be a man of irreproachable character, but if heresy be treason against the law, 
a character without reproach may aggravate rather than extenuate the crime. The man of imperfect morals may be too feeble of will to differ in opinion from the constituted authority, and his intellectual conformity may save him from the sentence which his moral weakness deserves. And time alone was needed to make it obvious how imperfectly Geneva could attain either unity of faith or purity of life, by turning her church into a city governed by positive law. Many points remain, of necessity, undiscussed. The merits and defects of Calvin as a writer of polemical treatises, his work as a statesman, and his appreciation of political questions in lands so unlike his own as England his qualities as a correspondent who feels no affairs of state too large to grapple with and no personal concern too small to touch, his worth and wisdom as an adviser who loves the great of the earth for the good they can do and judges that the higher a person is placed the more need there is for plain and candid speech, but who forgets not the humble and the poor and can pause amid the mightiest concerns to hear their plaints. His attachment and tenderness as a friend, whether in his brilliant youth or his sadder age, when he loved to unbosom himself to his strenuous comrade Guillaume Farel or his devoted companion Pierre Viret, could have justice done them only were the limits of our space wholly different from what they are. But there are three things that may be emphasised in conclusion. The first is Calvin's irenical services to Protestantism. He made the Reformed Church less antithetical to the Lutheran and the Lutheran leaders better understood among the Reformed. His doctrine of the Lord's Supper may be described as a spiritual doctrine of the real presence. He escaped the miserable perplexities which lurked in the scholastic notion of substantia, and were used to justify transubstantiation on the one hand and consubstantiation on the other. Where faith was, there the Lord was, and where it was not, there could be no idea of him, and no image or symbol could speak of his presence. Secondly, mention must be made of Calvin's services to the French tongue. He, perhaps more than any other man, made it a literary vehicle a medium for high philosophical and religious discussion. The Institutio has been said to be the first book written in French which can be described as logically composed, built up according to a consecutive and proportioned plan. The style is the man, exact, sober, precise, restrained, sad perhaps, or a trifle cold, but full of conviction and reason. The French he speaks is a natural product, an evolution, and a new phase of the medieval French, refreshed, vivified, made simpler and more living, by baptism in its original source, classical Latinity. Thirdly, his services to the cause of sacred learning must not be forgotten. These it is hardly possible to exaggerate. He is the sanest of commentators, the most skilled of exegetes, the most reasonable of critics. He knows how to use an age to interpret a man, a man to interpret an age. 
His exegesis is never forced or fantastic. He is less rash and subjective in his judgments than Luther, more reverent to scripture, more faithful to history, more modern in spirit. His work on the Psalms has much to make our most advanced scholars ashamed of the small progress we have made either in method or in conclusions. And his work is inspired by a noble belief. He thought that the one way to realise Christianity was by knowing the mind of Christ, that this mind was expressed in the scriptures, and that to make them living and credible was to make indefinitely more possible its incorporation in the thoughts and institutions of man. It is by his service to this cause that Calvin must be ultimately judged. End of section 39